0: Well, welcome to The Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our topic on building a Christian worldview, and tonight we are focusing on the reality of the world, attempting to define what the world actually is. And so we're gonna look at this topic of our basic existence and we are excited tonight to join again together with Shreya and Jacob. Thank you for joining us tonight, you too, that we get to talk about such an interesting and deep topic, developing a worldview, and one that is not violent, one that does not maybe have a war theology behind it, but one that is loving, and generous, and also hospitable to the people around, loving our neighbor. So that's what we're focused on. So to recap a little bit, last week, we, if you remember last week in our podcast, those of you who joined us, we are using an outline of the worldview developed from a Belgium atheist philosopher by the name of Elio Apostol. So I just thought it would be interesting to uh, use somebody that was outside of the church or, or somebody that would be maybe just apathetic towards religion, just looking at the world in a just uh, non-filtered form maybe, or maybe that's their filter, the atheistic filter is their filter. So looking at maybe two different angles and then coming up with our own worldview. And so a worldview or worldview is a fundamental cognitive orientation, so there's something to do with the mind of the individual or society encompassing the whole of the individual's or society's knowledge and point of view. So when you think about point of view, that is POV, that, that definitely my point of view comes from my perspective. So we have some challenges to sort through when something is from my perspective, my perspective is jumbled up with all kinds of things. It could be trauma, could be my knowledge, can be my education, lack of education, lack of knowledge, some things I'm just ignorant in and I don't know what I don't know. So my point of view is filtered through all of those things. So here's the framework that we're covering. So tonight, the explanation of the world. Now that's a lofty tall order right there. We're going to explain the world to you tonight. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to develop a Framework for you to explain the world. That's what we're shooting for. We're not necessarily going to explain the world. There's too many factors to the world. Uh, where are we headed? Our futurology, or that's where we are going. Where do we go after we die? What is the answer in the afterlife? Is there an afterlife? Is heaven and hell real places? Is hell, does hell exist in the way that we have fashioned it to exist? Satan with a little pitchfork and a fire pit in the middle of the earth amongst blazing lava and souls screaming and teeth gnashing. Uh, Maybe it's the fiery furnace where we're just stuffing in this oven. Who knows? But we're going to answer that here in a couple of weeks where we're headed. Then our ethical questions of our values. And what should we do with what we've been given? Brene Brown would say that I'm doing the very best that I can with what I've been given. And some people just need to stop doing the things that they, they are doing because they haven't been given much. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, our theory of action, that is another form of our, of our worldview, our knowledge, how much knowledge we have forms our worldview, and also then the building blocks, the origins and construction of our worldview, putting it all together in the end. So this six-point framework, that's what we're going to be starting with. Uh, over the next six weeks, in building our worldview, hopefully a Christian worldview. If we are believers in Christ, I guess we could still reclaim that idea of a Christian worldview. And tonight, we are a we are diving deep in the explanation of. The world. So I have top three statements to make about reality because that's where we're going to start with tonight is reality. These are my reality statements that I want to give you. Number one reality statement that I thought of this week is just because someone said it, even if you highly respect them, love them deeply, in love with them, partnered with them, best friends with them, married to them, just because they said it does not necessarily make it true. Agreed, disagreed?
1: Yeah, I can agree with that.
0: <laughs> Except what I say, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, number two. Number two, if you are a part of a group, group think. here we go. If you're a part of a group but only hold to a few ideas or principles of that group, That does not excuse you from the majority voice of the whole of that group. Moderate. Politician of some kind, or maybe a three point Calvinist when it comes to Christian theology and the big theologies out there. I'm only a partial Calvinist. That doesn't make any sense. We'll cover those kinds of things in the future. But let's say we're just, you know, maybe partial this or partial that, or I'm a soft complementarian. That means that I don't believe that women should hold certain positions in the church or leadership positions or maybe not have a voice in certain arenas. So we're a soft complementarian because they can hold some positions but not all positions or hold maybe under the authority of a group of men and still hold all positions, but we're soft about it. Either you are a complementarian or not, Calvinist or not. Number three, just because you believe it with your heart, mind, and soul and have conviction does not necessarily make it true. It might make you stupid, but it doesn't make you true. So we just need to remember that those three things, that's what we're building, the framework of reality. Those are some thoughts that I had this week. So last week we made mention of when we deconstruct things. In our life, when we deconstruct old ideas or old paradigms, maybe what mommy and daddy taught us or grandpa and grandpa taught us, aunts and uncles, cousins, our influences, our old bosses, whatever they taught us, those old ideas, just because you're deconstructing doesn't mean that you're moving into a new understanding of something. So just because you're deconstructing doesn't mean that you're moving into a new understanding of something. It means that you're deconstructing that old understanding. And a lot of times it's very easy to become exactly what we reject. And so we reject and hate on something so much that we fall in love with it and accept it again later on in life. Mm -hmm. So we need to be very careful. The old adage, I want to be so different that I'm exactly the same. I still wear my mullet. I still have my gauges in my ears, whatever it is that we rejected things so hard that we still look like that we were just, just, we stayed in the eighties and never grew up. All right. So the (laughs) 90s, (laughs) yeah, seventies, whatever it is. This comes when we have nothing to move towards, when we don't have a vision of progress. A framework is disrupted, but then a framework is not established. We're not constructing anything forward. So this is our thinking space here in this place. The Constructionist Podcast is a thinking space where we're going to present ideas and we're going to present thoughts. And I hope that really just these generate through the week and some of our questions that come across the the chat, which you're more than welcome to do so, that we... Uh, are able tonight to build a framework to explain the world that that's tonight's topic the reality of the world and What's really problematic with even that statement is you believe the world's a certain way and I believe the world's a certain way And I believe that world sh- world should not be a certain way and you believe the world should not be a certain way Who holds the keys to those realities? Well the truest reality who holds the key to that that truth You can support us financially if you want through our website, resonatelife.org. If you go to the Give tab, you can also finance that's how you financially support us. You can also support us by listening to this podcast each and every week and making comments and interacting with us. That's more important that we want you to interact with us on a regular basis. So when you ask questions, we learn and grow. We learn how to answer questions better and i hope that you get something out of these times all right reality reality sharia jake is the sum or the aggregate sum of all that is real or existent within a system i don't like that but this is just wiki definition as opposed to that which is only imaginary so an augmented reality maybe the term is also used to refer to the ontological status of things the being of things i'm a human being i have a being so my ontology is at play indicating my existence so my very so we're going to get existential so like looking outside of yourself looking within yourself i'm a person and so if i'm a person right I like that this, means this that i'm a being only Only existential. Only existential. So I'm a person, I'm a being, I have a study of my being, I have an existence, I have a maybe-ology, ontology of my being, and so therefore, that is a part of the reality in which I live, myself, my being. So for our purposes tonight, for the next 45 minutes, our purpose is here We're going to look at Western philosophy and what Western philosophy says about reality. I don't live in Eastern philosophy, although I enjoy Eastern philosophy. My culture is not Eastern, it's Western. So to adopt an Eastern philosophy into this discussion is not a... Reality, because I don't live in that, it's a reality for others, it's not a reality for me. So I need to look at my context, my culture, the things, people around me, and I need to look within that lens through Western philosophy. It says that, Western philosophy says that reality, the way that I understand the world, the way that I view the world, the way that I interpret the world, okay? Is thought of in divided into two thoughts the first thought is the very reality itself reality is reality the way the world is is the way the world is whether you believe it is that way or not so the color blue green white red the sky's blue because the sky is blue because science has shown with light and such that the sky is seen as blue Right, The ground, majority of the ground is brown with dirt for reasons. So we have the sky is blue, but you can believe that the sky is red and the the dirt is green. Some dirt is green. But you can believe what it depends on what uh, elements are in that dirt. Uh, But you can believe those colors if you want. But that doesn't mean that that is reality. Reality is based on certain things. And reality is reality whether you believe it or not. That's one thought of Western philosophy. That reality actually exists outside of my perspective and perception and my experiences. But then I have a mind relationship. So here's a right? Here's where we blow up a little bit. We all interpret that reality based on our cognition based on our mental framework. So our mind has a relationship with the reality that I face. So when I walk out, I have neighbors, I live in a community, my neighbors are across. I interpret my neighborhood, the reality of my neighborhood based on my relationship with that reality based on my cognitive understanding of my neighborhood therefore i can come up with all kinds of opinions judgments of my neighbor so if i can you know hate on my neighbor that's because i have a judgment called mind perception framework but my neighborhood is my neighborhood i live amongst people the reality is is that i live in the city i live in a suburb And that's just the way that it is. I can hate on that all that I want. I might not want to live in my neighborhood. I might want to live somewhere else. And it seems like that the whole United States from coast to coast seems like that they just are living in a non-reality right now. They want to live somewhere else. They believe they live somewhere else, but the reality is they they live here and we're going to define and discuss or there and we're going to define to discuss what here is so reality itself is concerned with this and is actually dependent on mental and cultural factors reality that i develop my reality is dependent on mental and cultural factors like perception and belief and my mental state Even my mental health, my religion, that could be part of my mental health. It could be not a bad religion, which is causing a poor mental health, which is causing a poor perception of reality. Political movements, and then this word, again, this Weltanschauung. Weltanschauung. This is the German word of the broad understanding of reality that we've known since probably you know the last 100 years or 50 years we just developed this reality that people drive cars and there's planes in the sky and the government's the way that they are and we go to work to make money and that that's kind of that german where the reality is is that you really do have to get a job in order to have enough money to pay for certain things in life that's a reality statement i guess that's that broader reality. So an understanding that reality is independent from these things okay? is called realism. That's called realism, where I believe that reality is independent from political movements, religion, mental states, belief, perceptions, and culture, or even this Walton How however you pronounce that. There's like three U's in it. It's quite a strange word. Anyway, this is an abstract kind of existential perception of reality that things are not based on these mental and cultural factors. So this is where we come to today's discussion. What produces our definition of the world? Our reality produces that definition of the world. So how do we produce or how do we come up with the framework of having an honest reality? having an honest view of the way things are around us. Now, I know that some of us listen to the same news cycles, podcasts, feeds, and these algorithms on social media and such actually develop a reality. Our perception changes based on certain things that the inputs that we receive. And so we need a better framework than just doom scrolling through our social media or our news feeds to gain a reality of the world so here's a simple example this is how it this is how it pans out in a really weird way and then it had this is how it pans out in a in a in a christian way okay so in a really weird way i've been watching this program on netflix and it's uh, it's i am a killer it's about these death row uh, people on death row and people uh, that have murdered other people, and I mean it is an intense show. You're just like this story they're telling the story of how they murdered these people. I mean this is dark. I'm in a dark place in this show, I and mean, this is where I go right in, in the in the night. Right, I'm on, on Netflix watching. I am a killer, and so, and so the show they they tell their story about how things went down when they murdered this person. But then the police and the investigators and the agents and the lawyers on the prosecution side have developed an entire different scenario of what has happened many times. Many times it it totally matches. But many times it doesn't totally match. That their scenario is completely different than maybe reality or maybe what the investigators found. How is it possible that something that, I would say, big event in someone's life, you could come out of that not understanding and having a correct perception of what exactly went on? So they unpack this, the way that that mind works and how the traumatic mind, the, the, the the mind that's gone through trauma, how that processes information and how, how abuse processes information or people who have been abused start to filter information a certain way. That is an extreme example, but I give you that example because that's an extreme example, but then there's then minor examples. There's just that at a minor level that we're all interpreting realities differently some might have this perception, some might have this perspective. How is it possible that we can be looking at the same event and come out with two different complete scenario conclusions? It is possible, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So many Christians believe, this is the Christian example, many Christians believe that the world is a sinful broken place But I would say that probably 50% of the world doesn't believe that.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: How is it possible that Christians come out and say that the world is a sinful, broken place, but then half the world population doesn't believe? Christians believe that therefore the world needs saving from the forces of evil redeemed to the forces of good. So we've developed this this, uh, bifurcation of good and evil in the world. And this is where heaven and hell is constructed from. So now we have a construction of actual physical places that we go. If you participate too much in evil, you go to this place. If you participate in a lot of good, Let's say I know not workspace salvation Christianity. I get it, but but we couldn't get there. Let's say we couldn't get there, so we needed Jesus, and Jesus comes along. He saves us from this sin, and therefore we're forgiven. We get to go to this good place, just good based place. out of the idea that we live in a sinful, broken place, and that we need saving from this world. So salvation is driven from that narrative. So therefore, through this lens, self image, self concept, other image, other concepts other concept, the way we view people, how we treat people, how we act towards people that are other than us, that are different than us. We start to treat maybe even by what we perceive them to be. We based on some very, very superficial level, we then start to treat them with violence because they're evil and we're good. And so good has to fight, fight evil and so our performance is based on this it all manifests in our reality all right that's my shtick just to start out about reality so sheree you're going to take the first discussion
2: do we comment on what you said or oh yeah sure
0: sure comment rip it apart
2: i'm not i mean i don't need to rip it apart um I mean, what what you're talking about in realism and reality in that the the object is representation of the aggregated whole is what's called Aristotelian realism. And so Aristotle came up with the general perspective that reality was based upon these archetypes of objects that we all interact with that archetype, but but what you're touching is only representation, not the actual object itself. Yep. And so Aristotle pulled out meaning from the physical in your hand and put it into a mesophysical space of, of higher meaning. So we can attain it, but there's a more pure sense of what each object should be.
0: I'll cover more of that in
2: my... I'm sorry. In my, but, no, no, it's good. That, I'll just cover more sense. of it, yeah. Okay, you're good.
0: Sherry, you have any comments on what I just said before you jump in?
1: I don't. Okay, I'm go right. for
0: it. Okay, post-truth is pre-fascism. Yeah. Take us there. What does that All even right. mean?
1: Or Let's let's not go there, actually. Okay. Um, well, like we've been talking about... Um, it's really um, it's really easy to feel like we're living in different realities even in just this country. Um, And so I think that's why this topic is especially timely. Um, So there's this idea from a writer named Timothy Snyder who focuses on um, politics and authoritarian regimes. And I believe this idea comes from him. That idea is post-truth is pre-fascism. So I'm just going to drop that there for now and let it marinate in the background um, and then take some time to talk about how do we even arrive at post-truth. How did we get here? So this is a, a no nuance. Oh, hey, yeah, that is an excellent book. There he is.
0: Put it up there again, Jake. Let's see it.
1: On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. Okay. 20 lessons from the 20th century. All right, so here's our no-nuance history lesson in five minutes, because it's hundreds of years to pack into a very (laughs) short amount of time. So we're talking about um, Western culture, so mostly Europe and a little bit of America. And if we look at the pre-modern era, so this is going to be before 1700-ish, truth was revealed by God and by proxy, the church. And then truth is also experienced through our senses. So I can trust God to reveal things, and I can trust myself to perceive them. And there's an assumption here that we're all experiencing the same reality and perceiving it the same way. In the late 1600s um, into the early 1800s, we have the enlightenment. And this was in part a response to that pre-modern era. Um, You had the church, which was corrupt. And so a lot of people were starting to doubt the church's authority. And you also had scientific discoveries that shook our understanding of reality. So for example, um, Copernicus and Galileo, Figuring out that the earth isn't the center of the universe. In fact, the sun is just the center of our solar system. Um, That created doubt in our ability to perceive reality correctly, because it Mm -hmm. sure seems like the earth is the center of the universe, right? So in the midst of this doubt, we have the birth of the scientific method. So now we can know truth because we can reason it out and we can prove it. And for the most part, this is a fairly solid system. But as we gained contact with other cultures around the globe, um, learning more from people who think differently than we do, um, we discover that we don't always come to the same conclusions with Mm -hmm. our reason. And eventually we move into the postmodern era, which is the beginning of the late 1900s. And it feels super weird to say that. So postmodernism understands that we live in a global world with multiple perspectives. And so it states that we cannot know if absolute truth exists. And this is an idea that freaks Christian out. So hang with me for a second. Um, and Rob, if you would pull up that graphic, please. Excellent. Okay. So we've got a circle in the middle. Well, a cylinder, we've got a cylinder in the middle and it says, this is truth. That's our objective reality. But then on the shadows of the walls, we have a square and we have a circle. This is true. This is true. They're completely different, but they're both true. Um, And then I like this graphic as it develops. Go ahead and scroll a little bit more, Rub. So it turns out there's not always just two takes on reality. Sometimes there's a third option and as we keep going down to the bottom, sometimes, sometimes there's six or more. And all of these things are true, but they're only a picture of, or a portion of absolute truth. So because we live in a culture with opinions and biases, and we have, we have a perspective on truth, um, we might see a little bit of it, we might see a lot of it, but we can't know for sure if we're seeing the whole thing So that's where this idea, we can't know absolute truth comes from. As this idea filtered down into popular culture, it kind of turned into absolute truth doesn't exist. And that's a big difference. When absolute truth doesn't exist, we see the rise of relativism and post-truth. And in this circumstance, we can create the reality we want by saying it over and over again regardless of how it matches with the reality around us. Um, And so I guess the the caution that comes with this is that this cultural attitude towards truth and reality opens the door for the loudest voice and the loudest truth to take over and to be enforced by unchecked power. So Snyder's idea that post-truth is pre-fascism we're living in a time when that is an opportunity Um, and so i think this topic is very important learning to think about reality to recognize multiple perspectives but see the truth undergirding them um, helps us to stay grounded in reality um, and that's necessary for a free society so questions
0: I'm just thinking about different times in history where this has actually played out uh, because it's hard to see your reality around you um, when you're in the weeds, when you're in it. So uh, I was in a discussion with somebody the other day and his brother or brother-in-law, I can't remember which one, brother and sister, brother in law sister or or brother, whoever lives in Cambodia, and the person that we don't talk a lot about is Pol Pot, mm-hmm. and post uh, Stalin, post um, you know the rise of of communism and such in some of those countries around uh, Vietnam and such, uh, a gentleman by the name of Pol Pot rises to power, and his his philosophy was to take society and turn it into a hyper agrarian society and so now everyone's going to learn how to you know develop or uh, grow food and rob can you take that image down for us so we can see jake's face too that would be great thank you <laughs> hey jake uh so hyper agrarian society so they would go, uh, then everyone was forced to farm, everyone was forced to to uh, raise their own food. Even if you didn't had never done it before, that's now gonna be your job, is to go out and tend cattle. Uh, how that played out is everybody that was educated, everybody that was a teacher, everybody that had doctors, and, and people that had like a higher form of education, all of them were killed. Mm -hmm. They were all slaughtered. What now we know is the killing field. So if you think about like how many people died, uh, they were killing mostly the, or trying to just remove any form of independent thinking. Let's Mm -hmm. put it that way. Independent thought. So that's an example there. I I think that probably, you know, Lenin had some of that. Stalin had some of that. Pol Pot had some of that. Hitler had some of that they they all had that like let's get rid of uh this intellect mm-hmm. uh, because they would speak maybe a more absolute or they would speak more of a hey a reasonable truth or so never- we can see other examples of that that mm-hmm. post-truth turns into pre-fashionist fascism
1: right and in the in the case of Hitler, I just read, he had a habit of calling the press the lying press. Right. uh, To undermine any authority or take on reality that media would have, um, which then makes it so that his voice is the loudest and the only one heard. Right.
0: Fake news. Fake news. (laughs) Yeah. Alternative facts. Well, that's when you live in an When you can't trust media, when mm-hmm. when things are being you know posed to you, uh, that's a very dangerous culture, very dangerous society. Um, it's definitely. I said that facetiously. Tiffany, and it's definitely fake news. That's what I was referring to. Absolutely. So yeah, we have a lot of that going on in our in our culture.
2: Although I think that all media should be questioned no matter what. Biases have to come out. And so the point of saying that post-truth is pre-fascism is to explain the idea that, that if you make your own reality and you keep just saying it over and over and over again so that you believe... You, see, you begin to actually believe the lie that you're telling yourself and other people. And there's no grounding there. Yeah. That is, that is the destruction of society.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So a friend of mine used the term this week, Christian intellectual elite and so i was thinking through like hey i resemble that comment <laughs> uh, what does that what does that actually mean i think i think that there's with what you're saying is 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 post truth basically a christian evangelical elite according to the books would would mean somebody that is of an intellectual level or believes a paradigm is subject and they do not allow the voices of the, like, let's say less educated or in this case, it was said Mm -hmm. the evangelical world that a Christian elitist would not allow the voice of the evangelical world to rise and hold positions of power, hold positions of influence. Now you can say, well, that's a good thing (laughs) that when, you know, when stupidity doesn't rise to power, that's, that's very important although jesus invited everyone to the table so we have to like find some sense of like and i want i don't want to use the word balance but some platform or some <clears throat> place that we can have rich discussions with those that you know maybe have a more scientific method or scientific reasoning over you know just you know the bible told me so type of thing. So so those are the those are the two the the, the two groups. Um so I had to sort through it's like a, am I a christian event or a christian intellectual elitist? I would probably be put in that category a little bit by some of my friends. Um because I do struggle with allowing Mar- very unintelligent brain. voices to attain positions like p- power. I don't I don't you know i i but i'm not in an authority position to hold them away from power so i don't hold a governmental position where i'm not you know i'm not actively pushing people away from certain positions of power
1: it's also a question of who already holds power to begin with right i i do think we have a lot of elected officials who would fall in the evangelical camp
0: say that one more time
1: i do think we have a lot of elected officials who could fall in the evangelical camp
0: yeah yeah So a lot
1: yeah if you already have power are you are you really being excluded from the table
0: Mm -hmm. okay that was so so one of the hallmarks to reality is making sure that we have a a very reasonable view of truth, reasonable view of who's speaking truth, and maybe a filter of deciphering what does what is post truth? like what is what is what are these uh, terms fake news and what does that mean to our development of reality? Uh, because honestly, there are there's a chart of our news stations where hmm. it, it shows kind of a graph of That's who's right. biased and who's not biased. And so it's kind of this graph where, you know, some of them are very central, which was surprised me that these are a balanced view viewpoint in our uh news media, like how we receive updates on the world, basically. And then of course, you know, the 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 obvious ones were, you know, either swinging way to the right or swinging way to the left on this graph and biases. So, so we really need to have a very conscious, careful obedience to truth, and careful right. obedience to how truth shapes our reality.
2: When that matches your first statement of tonight.
0: What was my first? Oh, just because somebody said it. Yeah even though you love them and they love you or you're in love with them or you're in love with they're in love with you could be your spouse partner best friend does not necessarily make it true my mom told me it was true so therefore it's true my dad told me it's true therefore it's true wow and we are right there we are right there as a society and you know you know i did my research and you know looked at my yeah, <laughs> came up with these. You know, I'm I'm now down at the down at the uh, local farm store taking horse paste to try to get over the COVID. Anyway, let's move on. Okay, so <laughs> the China virus. Kevin. Oh gosh. Oh. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. <clears throat> okay, so Jake, why don't you take uh, how then our discussion of how our family origins influence and shape reality?
2: I I'm, I'm stepping back from just family of origin and going more okay. toward all origins. And so, okay, um, the first idea is your your family of origin, not biological, but the the small group of people that intimately care for you. While you were growing up, shapes your perspective of reality, be it your attachment style, their values, their, um, how they even live their life, what they eat, what they how they function, their dysfunctions, your dysfunctions, and how those things play together. Um, is your is your family of origin? And so understanding and, and mapping out, who is in that circle for you, and we can get other things here soon as well. But who's in that circle, and and how do you attach, relate, and how do they attach and relate to you? And so that has some of the biggest um, implications on how you view society. Um, it has some of the biggest implications on how you treat other people, how you treat yourself, and so your your family of origin and, and either you reject them so hard that you become just like them or mm-hmm. you reject them so hard and you just you completely um, turn away from them and go a, a, a different direction. Or you 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 take your own path but are able to reconcile with, with what you you have gone through in life. So that's your family of origin that's that's your first starting point when understanding um why you view the world the way that you do Then you have your culture of origin or the traditions that that shape the way in which you also view the world and your position in, in history and i say it this way because um we are all white anglo-saxon most of us and so we are, we are the victors of history, currently. And so history books are written for us. Imagine if you weren't white, Anglo-Saxon, history books weren't written for you, what, what would you tell yourself about yourself? Um, if you, um, that had a lot to do with, with poverty and affluence. If you're, if you're not wealthy, Especially in the United States, uh, where it's a the Protestant experiment, which we can get to some other day. Mm-hmm. If you're not wealthy, you are not blessed by God, and so what right. what happens there, and what do you tell yourself about the world that that because you are in poverty, you're not you're not favored by God, but this person that isn't is affluent. Um, your race and ethnicity. And so I, I kind of touched on that a little bit later, but how do different races and ethnicities interact with each other? Like where does your, your biases land? Who Who is subhuman to you? Who's subhuman to your culture? And so how does that affect your view of, of reality and society? Then you look at all the isms in your culture directly. You know, we, in our Western culture, we have a lot of isms. Ageism, what we feel about people older than us. Sexism, what we view of the other sexes. Um, Xenophobia, what we deal with uh, other people outside of our own um, homogenous group of culture. Uh, Ableism, what people go through that are are handicapped or unable to or have low functioning mobility what do you do with if you are low functioning mobility what do you tell yourself about yourself based upon on that reality but also who is who is your independent other and othering is a philosophical concept of who is on the outside of your your inner circle and so Women, children, uh, people of color, especially for for where we sit, and it's a group in, in society. Um, we're also on the West Coast, and so our culture on the West Coast means something. As opposed to what we think about people that live in the Midwest or the East Coast. We have definite views about that. We live in the Willamette Valley, which... The, the Portland Metro area, the Lemma Valley is, is some of the most fertile land in all the world. but we have a definite view here of people that don't live here, especially those that are in Oregon. And then if you look outside of Oregon, what do we what do we view people that live one state over to our to our east? What do we think of people that live one state down to our south? I think those are the two largest, um, things that we have, but our access, our culture of origin, what, what do we have access to? And that access definitely points to how, how we view reality. Um, and then you have your, your trauma stories and trauma is, is one of the largest shapers that you have of, of reality. Um, Trauma does not need to be this extreme, extreme story. It does not even an extreme- I am a killer. You're a killer. Not, <laughs> yeah. not all of us need to be on death row in order to, to have our view of reality tested or changed. But the, the idea that when you come to an event, that you must choose your reality you must choose your next step, and thinking that—that's what I would define as—as as in the moment, what's my reality? Is what, what step am I going to, to take next? What's the next choice? And that's how you know where your your reality is and how it's changing. That is where we really see it—your um, discontinuity in in familial structures—and so. In your family of origin, not biological. Again, you take members of that that very tight, close knit circle and pull that person out. They have they that person changes in a way that is unreconcilable. Be it like a medical accident or a mental mental breakdown or whatever that is. Uh, you have to change your reality based upon upon that um something else that that i think is is beginning to great gain traction especially by the book it didn't start with you it didn't start with you uh it's a book that talks about how generational trauma shapes your reality and it's especially found in in native americans and also in in uh, especially European Jews that 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 amount of stress and trauma genetically has changed uh, mm-hmm. it has changed their gen- genetic form where uh, Cherokee that were on the trail of cheers their descendants they can tell the difference of if their descendant that their dna was on that their that their great 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 grandfather our grandmother was on the trail of cheers or not uh just by your genetic genetic code um if your family was jewish and a part of the holocaust they can tell whether you are that or if you were an american american jewish person and so trauma shapes who we are and shapes who our um our perspective is if if you're even being carried in the womb and something traumatic happens to your to your mother that also will shape your 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 world view of of how you mentally are able to to engage with the world and so also the next thing of, of origin is your is how neurotypical you are, and if you're non-neurotypical or if you're neurotypical. Non-neurotypical is engaging with reality without the biological, hormonal, neurological, or chemical markers of, and if I can get in the screen, giant air quotes of normal. How you normal, especially in this context, um, if you don't find yourself in that group, you've changed the way that you view you view reality, and that's how that's really how origin stories shape the way that you create meaning around you, where you can engage with uh, lots of things differently. Like if um, a big experiment, I can't remember. Oh, in uh, John Malcolm Gladwell, sorry. Uh, book talking to strangers. It talks about how, how they gave pictures of faces to indigenous uh, children versus European children, indigenous to islands, sorry, islander children. Uh, I think it was off of Indonesia. And a smile didn't always mean happy. The sky is not always blue because my blue might be different than your blue. That's all I got.
1: Thanks, Jake. Um. Something I've been thinking about as we're we're talking about worldview frameworks. Um, most of what I know about worldview frameworks comes from a Christian perspective. Um, and I've noticed that it doesn't really count for um, individualism versus collectivism. Um, that's just a conversation that's unaddressed. Um, and so as we're, as we're talking about worldview frameworks, I'd, I'd like to bring that in a little bit and have that conversation. Um, but that is definitely um, something that your family of origin will affect um, or your attachment to society. Um, Whether you think we're all in this together or not is a big deal for how all of us experience reality.
2: Yeah. We're not in the same boat. (laughs) My boat looks different than your boat. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the reality of... So here's a reality idea, we're all in this together was kind of a mantra through... The last couple of years we're in this together um we can get through this together and in reality uh, we in our uh, familial and cultural backgrounds and how we were raised uh, we are raised to be independent individuals in this american society and so what i think feel perceive matters over what you think feel and perceive you think field reasons matters so because
2: we are winners right right?
0: and depending on your perception of that other quote unquote other person that you're othering and that that can turn to violence and that can definitely and microaggressions violence macroaggressions the whole gamut so so uh yeah that that either cultural or familial uh Pieces of origin. I think about my background. You know, I was raised uh, very early childhood by you know my mom had a home economics degree, so she was a stay-at-home. Literally, like she was degree just like that was her. That was her degree. Um, uh, she knew a lot about a lot of things when it came to the home. She was like the Martha Stewart, you know, type mentality. She had a whole craft room. She knew how to cook and sew and and do everything like that really well. Uh, she taught classes on it and such uh, at, a, at a college. Um, when I went to go live with my grandparents, uh, my grandmother was definitely a very traditional, born in 1910, traditional family values type person, even though she wasn't a quote Christian or didn't have a Christian worldview. Uh, she definitely held to a like very traditional lifestyle. So I grew up around, you know, men wouldn't work, women stayed at home, that was my reality. So uh, it wasn't until probably five years into my marriage, I've been married for 20, 21 years, uh, or change, and t- uh, since 2001. So I've been married that long, five years into my marriage, about 2006, a, a friend of mine asked, what are you going to allow use the word allow amanda to do her thing what is her thing and how are you going to celebrate her thing oh it's very striking that i was actually giving off the perception that amanda was a stay-at-home wife and i was the one that went and worked that's something that i didn't even believe in then and i still was putting off that aura of amanda doesn't i'm not allowing amanda to have her thing and i think that was well probably because I was not taught in my family origin, my environment, to celebrate uh, women in their thing uh, and their careers and how they were developing, growing in society. So that was a big shift for me about five years, probably about 15, 16 years ago now, uh, in my whole, how I perceive even my family.
1: Yeah, because if you... you agree with it if you don't know what it looks like it's really hard to embody
0: right yeah and now i pay attention because it was so striking that was like a a good traumatic event right i mean created anxiety in me actually and uh and now i pay attention like during COVID, a lot of women had to go home uh to take Mm -hmm. care of children and they were the they were the stay-at-home workers are stay at home moms they went home to take care of the kids during like this time where school was ki- our school was put online and such and that was you know there was a there was a daycare crisis there childcare crisis there was there still you know is, yeah. Yeah, yeah women women being pulled off the workforce crisis and so so because of that traumatic event my reality changed and therefore i was able now to you know, perceive or at least think through as a male, white male on this planet that I could think through just maybe a different angle, different perspective.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, Rob wrote a comment, a question. Do you want to address that? I think it kind of ties yeah, um, into the origin.
0: Yeah, so many of us tell our children that their voice matters do you think that moving away from post-truth is saying that maybe your voice matters if it's good enough? Shreya, go ahead. Uh,
1: what I was thinking about is that I think it's just fine to tell our children that their voice matters. What I think we leave off is that other people's voice matter too.
2: I. Um, I might push a little bit to say, your voice matters to me.
1: Ooh, I like that.
2: And so, let's just be real and say that your voice, most of the time, doesn't matter. <laughs> that's true. You
0: yes. mean everybody? <laughs> just everybody? everybody? Yeah. Your voice.
2: Yeah. I think that's. I know that, especially being millennial, and.
0: Is that a millennial statement?
2: <laughs> no, it's it's kind of the, the millennial idea of of giving up on the idea that that we could be whoever we wanted to be. Yeah that that you're, you are the most important person, that your life you're going to make a difference so go and be the okay. very best version of yourself that you could be. And so we have now placed, I think, these weird hierarchies on all of these ideas that if you don't have this or that, um, if you uh, like uh, like uh, Luther in the 1500s, his idea was that every job was sacred, no matter what the job was, that your vocation was sacred. But we have a hierarchy of position where mm-hmm. service oriented jobs, jobs that you use your back, um, mm-hmm. are far, far beneath the jobs where you use your head. Right. And so.
0: Is that what we're really saying, though, to children when we say your voice matters versus. I, I kind of get the sense that maybe. What we're trying to communicate to our children by saying this is that I want to hear what's inside of you. Yeah. So you're, I want to hear, yeah. I want to hear your emotions. Your emotions matter. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, it seems like that there's a nuance of emotion, even in the, even in what I'm hearing you guys say about it. There's a sense of emotion in there that, that needs to be unpacked. In, well, Rob, we're, we're gonna uh, your first quite we're first your first question we're gonna answer in this next section. So let's take a little bit more time to talk about our third idea. And our third idea is developing a mental framework that's loving, missional, and hospitable and honest. How are we gonna take the things that we learned tonight just about post truth and yeah, like, can you, we
2: pause real fast and you yeah. can throw up Tiffany's comment? Rob. Tiffany, I think
0: maybe it should be what you say matters, uh, words matter, and your feelings are valid. Yes. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. Thank for, you. Uh, Clarifying. So...
2: We, we need child psychologists in our life. <laughs> yes, we
0: do. <laughs> Yes. So uh, you don't matter. No.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so developing a framework, uh, definition of a mental framework. This is the definition just pulled right out of the books. This is what I look at when I, when I uh, look at mental framework, an explanation and representation of a person's thought process, their cognition for how something works in the real world, external reality. So a, an example, an explanation and representation of a person's thought process, cognition, for how someone works in the real world, external reality. I would love to take some people's mental frameworks and if we can map them out on a paper and just, just uh, put them together and see how different their representation, their thought process, about how the world works, the external reality of how the world works and how different we actually think, how different we actually are. So I have three thoughts. Here is a, a mental uh, model of human nature and I don't have a graph or anything. I wish I wish I did. But let's say we're faced with an issue. This is developing real time. We're going to develop real time uh, framework of reality here. So let's say I'm I'm faced with an issue. I can just declare that's not true because of what my you know parents taught me. My family and origin don't believe that, so I don't believe that. You could respond that way, and there's a lot of people who do. Um, Or you can look at the challenge problem or issue that you're faced with and you can look at it in reverse. That's the first example of developing a solid mental framework process is when you are faced with something, you think of it backwards. You digest information backwards. So how did we get to this point? You look at history. You look at influences. You look at... Multiple conclusions, you begin to look at it, where did this start from? And then you just kind of back it up. That shows that you're actually thinking. You look at something maybe in the inversion, they call it, look at it invertedly. Then there's another element to mental framework development, and that is first and second level thinking. So you have a first level thinking, which is very visceral. Right. First level thinking is you just, well, it can be dangerous when you first level think that's just, you know, getting punched in the face and you dodge, you know, you dodge the punch. I mean, that's just like first level thinking. Second level thinking is you get, you know, threatened to get you know punched in the face. The swing comes and you then engage your defense mechanisms and you block the punch. Right. So you take the punch. Maybe the dodge is the second level thinking. But second level thinkers basically they approach decisions or they approach life uh, just differently. They ask questions about what is uh, being thrown at them. Now this is something that I think that in our world today we really have struggled with. We've really struggled asking good questions about certain things that are are posed to us. And so our interpretation of the world gets skewed. Our hermeneutic, what I'll call hermeneutic, how you interpret different things, how you interpret the world, your her, your world hermeneutic, how you interpret the world, is not consistent. So it's not consistent to the point of... of like, well, you know, we promote and end up promoting violence when we are anti-something, we are pro-something else. It's an inconsistency in our belief systems. It's, it starts with not asking good questions. Like, if I believe this, and what's the outcome? If I adhere to this, what is the, the, the probability of that other people are believing this? Maybe what is the prevailing consensus of what? What do ever? What does everyone else believe that is around me? Uh, what expectations can I expect, and the consequences that I will endure based on believing this? Most people don't ask these questions about just adopting belief, but I can tell you that there is a consequence to having thoughts that turn to belief, that turn into the adoption of theology, that manifests itself in praxis in the church. And therefore, then we exercise violence on people, micro-macro violence on people. Why? Because we just didn't ask the question: Does loving your neighbor mean loving all your neighbors, or does it mean loving just the neighbor that you like? Right. So that's. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, that's yeah.
0: So, so that we've gotten ourselves in a lot of trouble. and then we become when, when somebody disagrees with us. So now we've adopted this belief. I've asked no questions. It's because of what my grandparents taught me that that's why I'm a first level thinker. I, I haven't. It's just because I am a certain political party. I check all the boxes when I vote. That's how a lot of people vote. They just vote all their political party. They don't even care what people think or what they believe or who they are. That's a first level thinker. Right, a second level would be asking questions about who do you, you know, who do you support and what they stand for, and do you agree with what they stand for, and how many people agree with what they stand for, and such. Right? Are they a good person, or are we just checking a box because you know my whole family is a certain, you know, political party? Right? So, so we ask good, solid, solid questions. Consequences of our decisions. What happens though, when we don't do that? We end up being a very monolithic group think that is predominantly one uh, race or one color of skin white evangelical church, right? That is anti-intellectual, anti-education, homeschool only we have all these things that we, we're just not asking we end up that way because we're not asking questions we're not entering into second now you just deem me a christian uh intellectual elite right there right because
2: because you hate homeschoolers, <laughs> homeschoolers.
0: I, had never I never <laughs> said that i never said that i never said that so maybe that turns into a decision uh Kind of framework or decision process that you develop in your life. When it comes to mental frameworks, we have to come, uh, we have to come up with our own decision making process. Right? There's an old movie that they end up out in the desert. They're on horses, and uh, one guy looks at another guy because they're totally lost and they're thirsting for water. And he looks at the other guy and he says, "Maybe we should rethink our decision making paradigm." And I, I've always, it was a comedy and I just laughed and laughed and laughed because it was so funny to me at the time. It was so funny. Um, and I think that I just live there right now. <laughs> we're out in the desert, we're wandering around on horses and we're like going, there's got to be something better than this. And maybe we're just looking at each other going, maybe we need to rethink our decision making paradigm. So maybe we come up with a decision making paradigm that is, please second level thinking, asking good questions, coming up with secondary questions, questions upon questions, looking at expectations, consequences and results to when we adhere to a certain philosophy, framework, theology, whatever it is. So complementarianism, soft complementarianism means that I believe that women can hold positions of power in the church only to a certain level. The soft complementarianism is a false reality that doesn't exist it's either complementarianism or complementarianism there's no like there's no half complementarianism there's either complementarianism or no complementarianism that's what i meant to say so so when you're a complementarian and you only believe that women can hold certain positions in the church and can't hold others that is not an equal society that is not an equal culture some people are very comfortable there i'm very uncomfortable there um some people are comfortable there okay i don't understand that but my decision i i have to come up with my own decision making pair my own framework and i and i can't just like pick and choose i guess certain ideas ideals and be only a partial one of those because my family of origin tells me that I'm supposed to believe this, behave this way. So I'll just accept part of it. Um, I would say, I would say being a Christian right now, right? Kind of has that same calling ourselves Christian is really difficult right now. It really is. I usually now call myself, I follow Jesus. You know, it's calling ourselves Christian. I, it's it's a hard label, it's a hard badge to wear as like an honorable badge right now because when I when I, you know, group get jump jump in the group, I'm accepting that whole group. Okay, so so back to back to that first, we have to develop a mental framework with good questions and secondary secondary thinking. Um, I looked up something today. Uh, And I just wanted to, if I can find it really quick, share it, share it, share it. Where is it? There it is. Uh, An effective framework. Um, First, okay, there it is. Thank you for your patience. Okay. Developing a functional, honest framework. You have to decide and define what trust is for you. Who do you trust? What do you trust? Um, What information do you trust? That's where I engage a multidisciplinary approach to life. When I receive certain information, I say, okay, well, what what does God say about this? What does the Bible say about this? But I also weigh that with... What does society say about this? And what does science say about this? What does philosophy say about this? What does history say about this? So a multidisciplinary approach, when we're faced with information, we have to develop a, a uh, method or, or a, a multidisciplinary approach to trust, like learning how to trust responsibly. Mm-hmm. So uh, looking at our biases, when we come up with a mental framework, we have to be honest with our biases. We have to be honest. When I went through race race train,
2: uh Sensitivity.
0: Racial sensitivity training when I was uh, adopting my children from a different uh, country. They're, they're children of color. And I went through uh, the, the Hague uh, certification. And I was faced with all of these questions and I had to be honest with my biases. And so then we unpacked those in counseling. and it was a very healthy, very healthy uh, approach and very healthy uh, time for me. just being honest and then coming out of coming out of, uh, just that mentality that like white privilege doesn't exist. Right? I can believe that white privilege doesn't exist because I'm white, but that doesn't mean that white privilege doesn't exist just because I say it doesn't. It just, that doesn't, that's just, So I need to be honest with my biases and really think through how does those, this is second level thinking, how do those play into what I want to believe in and what I'm actually like adhering to Uh, when when a news, something on the news is said, okay, do I just like what was said because I'm biased towards that thing or because I have a biases towards that thing? Or is it kind of the Pavlov's dog syndrome? right? It's familiar. Mm -hmm. So because something's familiar and I've been told it over and over and over and over and over again, again, just because you're, that's number four, just because I'm told something over and over and over and over and over again, doesn't make it true. So do I have a Pavlov's dog association to, uh, since something that I believe in takes away something in my life. So if I believe this I no longer can believe this. If I believe this, I have to now lose this in my in my mental framework, in my reality. When I when I so does that make me angry? Does that make me jealous and envious? Does that make me feel like I'm losing, taking from, taken from? So when I actually so th- that's the second level thinking. When I believe something, what am I actually losing? Uh, that's something to really. Uh, there's another uh, real big consideration is those the power of denial. Now, I would say, Jake, is true that trauma does shape our realities. And one of the biggest shapers of reality that I believe is traumatic or a trauma is our ability to deny. And so either... So so our denial shapes our reality strongly. Our denial that something exists, that it could exist, how could this exist? How could this be so? Oh my gosh, this is not the America that I live in. This is not the western world that I live in. How could this be my United States of America? Well, it is. Welcome to the United States of America. We can deny that things are happening. And so the, so they been- so they call Portland the dumpster fire of America. You know, we're just a dumpster fire over here, right? Portland Metro is just a heap of trash that's on fire. And and people just haven't like looked in their backyard of Alaska. You know, like that's – talk about a dumpster fire. So, So, <clears throat> so we deny <laughs> wow. what's in our – they don't have any trash removal there.
2: They don't have trash removal. It's in crazy all, in all in, of Alaska.
0: In in many parts of Alaska, they do. But if you go to some of the rural parts of Alaska, they do not
2: have like,
0: like, like. What do you do with an old refrigerator there? What do you do with old appliances? What do you do with that? They just. I don't know. It's just. It's it's different. I just use that as a little example. But they call us a dumpster fire where people are not looking at their own dumpster fires. That's a metaphor for we got like massive challenges in Portland. People are not looking in their backyard of the massive challenges that they have or their front yard. So we deny because why we're living there. We don't want to believe that our land and our world is a dumpster fire. Does that all make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. We also have to look at our tendency to stereotype. So when we are faced with information, we stereotype that information or person that's giving that information. Well, they're that way, so that can't be true. Right? They're that person, so what they're saying is false. So we have bless, our biases. Bless their <laughs> heart. Yeah. yeah. So, so we have our stereotypes. We have our biases. We have our denials, we have our Pavlov's dog familiarity, we get angry, envious, je- envious jealous over losing things or having to give up things, uh, and then we have trust issues. So all of these need to be really thought through and I wanna encourage us, and I'm gonna read them again. Trust, What is? what are your trust issues? What are your biases? What is your Pavlov dog? De- Disorders can I say a disorder your Pavlov dog associations
2: Pavlovian
0: Pavlovian uh associations yeah what are you afraid of losing what are you denying and what are you stereotyping let's continue this part two next week can we It's great. It's too important. All right. Thanks everyone for joining us. Catch us next week, same time, same place, 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We are called the constructionists and we hope that you got something out of this tonight. Take care.